no longer associated with the World Wrestling Federation in any manner. Big Daddy Cool Diesel as well as the bad guy Razor Ramon. And it has been reported that both of these individuals intend to pawn themselves off as the stars they once were here in the WWF. And to furthermore perpetuate some sort of ruse that they're still representing the World Wrestling Federation while actually under contract to a rival organization. And it was really tough to let my wife down, disappoint her, scare her. I mean, it got to the point with her where she'd have to stay awake some nights to make sure I didn't die. Because I'd quit breathing and she'd shake me. I'd take too many pills, do too much cocaine. and She'd shake me to keep me breathing. and Maybe she'd have to dig vomit out of my mouth because I'd be choking on it in my sleep. Didn't even know it. Listen, you stupid son of a bitch! I'll get uh, we apologize. What I'd like to know is, how do you feel being one of the members of the Wretched Refuse? Sitting paralyzed with fear while Brian Elfman Billman does, says, whatever he wants. <laughs> You sit there and you thump your Bible and you say your prayers and it didn't get you anywhere. Talk about your Psalms. Talk about John 3.16. Austin 3.16 says I just whipped your ass. Hello, my name is Bob Bamber and welcome to the Wrestling 20 Years Ago podcast. We're going back in the time machine of June of 1996 for Volume 1 of this month's show. Volume 2 covers WCW and the Great American Bash. Volume 3 is all your ECW action, including some interesting look at some shoot fights. I'm here in Volume 1 looking at the WWF and King of the Ring. I'm being joined first by Chris Lacey. Chris, good evening. Howdy, Bob. And Craig Wilson. Hello. Uh, it's actually me kicking off the news. Here we go. Uh, the WWF started legal action against WCW this month in an attempt to derail the Scott Hall and Kevin Nash invasion storyline of WCW. After sending Hall a letter, the company filed a lawsuit for an injunction on the entire thing, a hearing of which will be had in the middle of next month, but crucially after the Bash at the Beach pay-per-view. The lawsuit itself contains four sections. The main two concern the idea that it is an interpromotional angle and regarding the likeness of the Razor Ramon character. There was also a ten-part restraining order, one of which preposterously attempted to lay claim to Diesel's likeness right down to his goatee. We'll have much more on this story later in the show. Brian Pillman debuted on WWF television this month after signing a three-year contract with the company following incredibly complex contract negotiations that involved the WWF, WCW and ECW. It is said that on June 1st, Pillman and Eric Bischoff agreed a three-year contract for him to join WCW, but that fell down on the same 90-day rolling clause that saw Mark Merrill leave the company previously. Pillman's contract with the WWF is said to be the first of its kind, offering a downside guarantee rather than simply just a portion of live event gates. And the story gets even more bizarre when you find out that, as part of the storyline, WCW actually cancelled Pillman's contract, meaning they had no leverage in delaying his WWF arrival. More on this story later in the show as well. 
The WWF pulled off probably one of their best pay-per-views since 1994 with their King of the Ring show, the tournament which was won by Stone Cold Steve Austin. Shawn Michaels and the British Bulldog had a very good main event. Shawn won the match, which ended up involving two referees. There was also a surprisingly near-clean victory for Mankind over The Undertaker, who submitted him with Mankind's finisher, which they're now calling the Mandible Claw. Elsewhere on the show, Austin and Jake Roberts won their semi-final matches, and there were wins for the Smoking Guns, mm. the Ultimate Warrior, Ahmed Johnson, who defeated Goldust for the Intercontinental title. The British Bulldog handed in his contract with the WWF, although in this case it seems to be to stop it auto-renewing rather than anything else. It said that Smith was one of a number of talents asked to extend their deals by three years with the belief the company were trying to test talent to see who was with them or not. Davy Boy was reportedly fuming at what happened at MSG Lance last month and it's possibly one factor that caused the match at In Your House to be such a letdown. That being said, the main reason was likely down to Sean and Davy not being aware their match was being televised until midway through. A house show match between Vader and the Ultimate Warrior in Chicago on June the 9th ended up with Vader walking out on the match twice. After a series of 20-second squash match victories on events prior, Vader just walked out on the match while being told if he didn't go back, he might as well carry on walking back to Colorado. Vader walked out again before finally returning to complete the match. In Denver the next week, him and Warrior fought for a double countout. Apparently plans to push Vader are on hold until he can drop some weight. Vince McMahon is close to coming to a deal with Ron Simmons to bring him in. Uh, there were also debuts and returns at recent tapings with many names being given new gimmicks, including Jim Nightar and Tracy Smothers. Bret Hart's return date is still unclear, but it's said that Summer Sam SummerSlam seems like a long shot now. Survivor Series in November could be more likely. And Jeff Jarrett has been given a conditional release. He is very likely going to WCW, but cannot debut there until his contract expires in late October. And to throw in a piece of news that came to me so late, I didn't even have time to get into the script. Apparently, as of a uh, house show yesterday evening, Sid Vicious popped up in the main event. We'll have more on that story next month, I suspect. Uh, and finally, the ratings for the month. On June the 3rd, Raw, uh, Raw did a 2.3, the Nitro's 3.4. On June the 10th, the debut of Kevin Nash from Nitro didn't stop Nitro losing at 2.6 to 2.7 to Raw. June the 17th, the night after the pay-per-view, Nitro beat Raw by a full ratings point, 3.4 to 2.3. On June 24th, Nitro beat uh, Raw 3.3 to 2.7. That was the night after the King of the Ring. And for what it's worth, Nitro's replay continues to do very strong numbers. On June 17th, the show did a 1.5. Look, Warrior, we got to get these differences between us settled. I know you're a little upset with me. I know you think that I cost you... You're shot at being king of the ring. But first of all, let me just say this. It ain't so great being a king, believe it or not. It's a pretty tough job. You know, as I've said before, heavy hangs the head that wears the crown. It ain't easy being me, and it wouldn't be easy being a king for a whole year. So, really, I sort of saved you a lot of trouble. Because when you wear a crown, when you're the king of the ring, you become a target. Everybody's after you, warrior. So listen, look. Here's all I want to do. You know, I've been, I've been looking through your, your new comic book. It's fantastic. Some great artwork, beautiful artwork. And you know, I'm an artist myself, both in the ring and outside the ring. So what I've done, just to try to square things between you and I, I took time out of my busy schedule, Warrior, and I did a portrait of you. 
And I hope you like it. I want to give it to you. No charge. Not a penny. Not nothing. It's a gift from me to you. Now you got to admit, this is a good portrait. You're, you're a good guy. I'm a good guy. This is my gift to you as like a peace offering. I'll give you this. We'll shake hands. We don't even have to do anything. If you're trying to get out of the match, that's all. That's it. You're just trying to get out of the match. Why do we have to have a match? We don't need to have a match. Look at this. Look at it. Look at the rippling muscles. Look at the biceps. Look at the pectorals. Look at the detail in the face. A lot of time and trouble. A lot of heartfelt feelings went into this portrait. It's for you. I want you to take it. It's a gift. Warrior. You may be an artist, Jerry the King Lawler, but how I see it, I see you as the biggest con artist there ever was. That's the kind of artist you met. I can appreciate the art, and I can appreciate the time that was taken to get it done. But there's only one king in the World Wrestling Federation being a king of the ring, a WrestleMania, a Survivor Series, a SummerSlam, the battleground doesn't matter. Right here, warrior, created by a destiny, fulfilling a destiny, bonded by the belief, the belief that at the king of the ring, I'm going to kick your ass. We start Raw on June the 3rd with a promo from Goldust wearing absolutely nothing, with only the Intercontinental title covering his waist. He tells Ahmed Johnson that if he wants the Intercontinental title, then all he has to do is come and get it. Stone Cold Steve Austin defeats Bob Holly with the Billion Dollar Dream submission. Mankind defeats Barry Horowitz with his submission before calling out The Undertaker. Of all the things I've lost in life, I think the thing I miss the most is my mind. And at the King of the Ring, you're going to lose it all. We get an interview from Goldust, who's still lying naked with his title belt. Goldust said he only did what came naturally to him when he gave Ahmed Johnson mouth-to-mouth last week. The Body Dons are looking for a new manager. They're searching worldwide and they want people to send letters into a P.O. box. Sonny is out next on commentary for a match between the Godwins and Techno Team 2000. He's actually very articulate. The Godwins win the match with a slop drop. Clarence Mason joins Vince by phone. They show a clip of Mason being pushed a bit by uh, by Gorilla Monsoon. And Mason says this is aggravated assault. During the main event of Hunter Hearst Halsey and Jake the Snake Roberts, Vince McMahon says, Speaking of last hurrahs, no longer associated with the World Wrestling Federation in any manner a big daddy called Diesel, as well as the bad guy Razor Ramon. And it has been reported that both individuals intend to palm themselves off as the stars they once were in the World Wrestling Federation, and furthermore perpetuate some sort of ruse that they are under contract to the WWF with a rival organisation. He then says that for further information, fans can consult WWS AOL feed. Roberts wins the match with the DDT. Hunter is still in the doghouse for now. Jake puts the snake on him after the match. 
On to June 10th, we have the bill for the Laura Warrior match at King of the Ring. Largely seems to be King, showing off his very real artistic abilities. We open up with Owen Hart against Yokozuna. This match was everything you'd expect it to be, right down to the We Want Brett chance from the crowd. Yokozuna slips off the second rope going for a bonsai drop and Owen pins him using the ropes. We get a candid clip, clip from comments from Jake Roberts from Action Zone talking about his very real life struggles. My wife would have to stay awake at night sometimes to make sure I didn't die. She'd shake me when I stopped breathing. We follow that with a sombre post-match interview with Yokozuna, who says he can't believe he's lost to Owen Hart. He might have to go and find himself. Mark Marrow defeats Skip to advance to the King of the Ring next round. We get an in-ring promo with Laura and Warrior. Laura begs off and says he can't be being the King ain't easy, so he's sort of helping him out when he cost him his shot at the King of the Ring. He offers him the portrait as a peace offering. I think we know where this one's going. Warrior calls him an artist. A con artist, that is. Warrior says he's going to kick ass at King of the Ring before the inevitable happens. King smashes the portrait over the back of Warrior's head. Shawn Michaels has an inset promo during an Undertaker walkout. As Bulldog has handed in his notice by this stage, this feud has been significantly toned back. Vince asks Shawn if the people are right when they say he, quote, let the clip down during the first match. Cornette interrupts Vince. Cornette teases Sean about losing last month, then says the lawsuit has been dropped with Monsoon and Sean, and in return they will get to pick the special guest referee for the match. The main event is Bulldog against Undertaker. Bulldog does a fantastic sell job of Undertaker's punch off the top. Bulldog won the match by countout after Mankind grabbed hold of Undertaker from under the ring. Mankind finishes off the post-match attack with the pile driver. June 17th opens up with Stone Cold Steve Austin against Savio Vega in the King of the Ring quarter-final. Austin wins a pretty nothing match for the sit-out neckbreaker. While man Mark Marrow defeated Owen Hart in another quarter-final match. After the match, Owen knocked out Marrow with his arm, which is wrapped in a cast. We cut to Super Slars with a clip of an in-ring interview with the British Bulldog and Diana with Jim Ross. Bulldog says Shawn Michaels messed with his most prized possession, and at King of the Ring he will take his most prized possession. I'm going to take you and bury you like an old dog, bone Sean Michaels. Bullock was never the smoothest promo. Some more comments later and Sean comes out, out storming to the ring and we get a pull-apart brawl. Jerry Lawler goes out to the ring to interview Aldo Montoya. Instead he just knocks him out with a mic and starts attacking him. All the message for the Ultimate Warrior. We get a press conference with teary Brian Pillman announcing his WWF contract signing. He's propped up on crutches and calls it a dream come true. During the main event between Jake Roberts and Goldust, we get an inset promo from Action Zone. Roberts says he doesn't want people to make the same mistakes he did in relation to his real-life drug issues. Harvey Whippleman is refereeing this match. Goldust feels up Roberts. Roberts goes after him with the title. We get a split screen. Mr. Perfect says he has a scoop on who the special guest referee will be. I think this is pretty obvious, but they're going to make us wait for it. Goldust squats on top of Roberts as we hit the break. We then throw some glitter of sorts in Roberts' eyes and hits him with a right arm, and Whippleman counts the three. He then realizes Zera and awards, Goldust the, uh, awards Roberts the match. We end the show with Cornette and Perfect revealing the ruse. Mr. Perfect will be the special guest referee. Thanks, Vince. Uh, we are here in Yokozuna's locker room. Yoko, I know you got to be very, very despondent uh, over what has happened. What are you thinking right now? I don't know. I just, I just lost it. You know, I can't believe it. Owen Hart. This is not the not the old Yoko. 
maybe it's just thinking about getting my hands on Jim Cornette so so bad I'm just losing it can't even concentrate I just gotta go gotta find myself and we move on to the king of the ring Craig and kicks off with the results of course, there were two matches before the card itself, a free-for-all match and a dart match. In the free-for-all match, the body donors, Skip and Zip, uh, with Cloudy, defeated the new rockers of Marty Giretti and Leaf Cassidy. In a dark match, uh, Hunter Hearst Helmsley defeated Aldo Montayo. In the opening uh, match of the broadcast, in the King of the Ring semi-final match, Stone Cold Steve Austin defeated Mark Merrill with Sable in just shy of 17 minutes. In the second semi-final, Jake Roberts defeated Vader with James E. Cornette uh, via disqualification at the three and a half minute mark. Then the Smoking Guns, uh, Billy and Bart Gunn with Sonny defeated the Godwins uh, with Henry Godwin and Phineas I. Godwin with Hellbilly Jim in the tag team title match. The Ultimate Warriors then defeated Jerry the King Lawler. Mankind bested The Undertaker. Ahmed Johnson defeated Goldust to win the WWF Intercontinental Championship. In the King of the Ring main event, Stone Cold Steve Austin defeated Jake the Snake Roberts in just shy of five minutes. And in the main event, the WWF champion Shawn Michaels with Jose Lothario in his corner defeated the British Bulldog who was accompanied with James E. Cornette and Diana Smith. And Mr. Perfect acted as a special outside enforcer in that match. Chris, what do you think of this show? Well, having not really seen a lot of the WWF stuff recently, um, I've basically just been watching the big four, uh, so I saw Rumble and I saw WrestleMania. Um, it's a sort of massive change from what I'm used to seeing from the WWF. A um, lot more sort of brawling than there has been in their usual shows, but still not as it, like the levels that we do see in ECW, which I'm used to. Um, but yeah, it was a really good show. Great. I think Chris makes an interesting point. Just the sort of change of how it how it came across. The, it, it did seem a little bit different to to what had gone before. There was some really really solid stuff on the show, but there was also some matches that are completely forgettable. Yeah, um, the best WWF pay per view in eighteen months. I don't know that that says a lot, um, but in terms of there were three very good matches on this show. And the booking, by and large, was pretty good. Um, as for everything else, it was up and down. I agree, there's some forgettable stuff on this, but this is still a, a far better show than we've been experiencing recently, which, for a, certainly for a three-hour show, given that a lot of the stuff we've seen recently has been in your house related, uh, was pretty good. We open up King of the Ring for free for all this month with Sonny bemoaning the new Bigger in the Belly replacement for her during the Body Dollars and the Walkers match. That's Cloudy, who's basically a bloke dressed as Sonny. Uh, Todd Pettengill, ever the professional, phones in from home despite being too ill to do the show. He comes in for a hard sell of it. Lee Cassidy hits a lovely full Nelson German suplex that looked great on Skip. Mai hits a nice jackknife powerbomb off the top rope. Cassidy hits a lovely set-out spinebuster before Cloudy kisses him. Skip rolls him up and wins the match. We get a Brian Pillman promo on crutches. He says a time bomb is here in Milwaukee and promises to make his presence known tonight. That's back to Pillman playing at heel. Jim Ross attempts to get comments from Armand Johnson. Johnson cuts a nice promo. He says he's going to hurt Goldust where it hurts the most. We get King of the Ring memory from Bret Hart being attacked by Jerry Lawler in 1993. I wonder if we're going to see Mabel during the show. We'll find out. 
get proud of a Mr. Perfect on the stage. They reference a feud with Sean and Perfect from a couple of years ago, and they're bumping into each other at the pay-per-view. As for beating up Shawn Michaels, hasn't everyone beaten up Shawn Michaels? We move on to the King of the Ring show itself. We open up with a really nice produced video package. We're in Milwaukee. Vince McMahon and Jim Ross are on the call, and here to give us his quite expertise is Owen Hart. We open up with the first semi-final, Stone Cold Steve Austin versus Wildman Mark Mara with Sable. Jim Ross calls the sit-out neckbreaker Austin used on Vega in the quarterfinals as the Stone Cold Stunner. Ross says Austin is being unemotional. Quote, there was a lot of emotion at the Alamo and everyone died. We start the match with some chain wrestling. Austin locks in a chin lock. Fans rally behind Sable. Marrow hits the head scissors, then sets up for a flip dive on the outside, but Austin retreats to safety. Marrow fires off the far ropes, and Austin runs him over with a Thez press. Marrow fires back with the back body drop. Austin retreats to the outside and signals for a timeout. Marrow comes off of the ropes, and Austin sends him flying to the outside. He has the control. Austin pulls up the ringside matting, lifts him above his head, then just drops him on the concrete. Austin gets back in the ring and starts celebrating. Austin now has complete control. He drops an elbow from the second row, but only gets a two. Austin locks in a Boston Crab. Marrow can't get to the ropes, but does manage to roll out of it. He shoots for a small package, but Austin kicks out. Austin regains control with another Crab. Sable rallies the fans. Marrow gets a couple of pins, but only gets twos. Marrow uses his legs to roll through into a lovely pin, but Austin kicks out. Marrow goes for a standing sleeper hold. Austin hits the Stone Cold Stunner, but cannot get the cover. Austin fires Marrow into the corner. Marrow jumps on the second rope, then blindly jumps backwards, taking Austin out. He follows that with a running drop kick. Marrow hits a double axe handle from the second rope for two. Marrow sends Austin over the top, then hits a somersault plancher. Austin retreats to by the R waist, and Marrow gets back in the ring and hits a suicide dive. Back in the ring, he hits a missile drop kick. Austin says Austin is, quote, tougher than shoe leather. Marrow hits a Frankensteiner from the top, but Austin kicks out. Marrow goes for a hurricane run. Austin catches him at the top of the move and drops him onto the top rope. Marrow barely kicks out, so Austin stands him up, hits a stunner, and that's enough for that. Craig, what do you think of this? Uh, yeah, I, I really enjoyed this. Uh, I've been quite critical of Mark Miro uh, on previous shows, but I thought he was uh, he was very solid here, and I like the new direction of uh, Steve Austin since dropping the woeful ringmaster. I thought some of his attack looked pretty vicious. Uh, I know I thought they worked a, a pretty good match. Certainly one of the standout matches on on the show. Chris. I always thought this was an amazing opener. Um, a really good sort of start to the show. You know, we always say when we do the ECW shows that you know they normally start with the walking brawl that sort of really goes nowhere. Or when WCW do it, they start with the fast-paced match. This sort of showed that WWF can pick up a show and go, right, here you go, here is a, a good opener. Um, Austin's clearly changed his style from when we were watching lots of him in WCW. Um, he never used to be this much of a brawler, and he's not using the technical side of wrestling that he was as much then. Um, I don't know whether it's just because he was in with Mark Mero or whether that's what he's been doing for most of the time, but obviously I've seen a bit of him this month from this month's TV. He's very much changed to start to a more of a brawling, sort of attacking style with very few wrestling moves, but more more kicks and punches which is very good for him and working for him, um, obviously very different from what we've seen. 
Yeah. Um, my, my thoughts are probably more to do with Marrow than they were to do with Austin. I think just in the sense that we've we've seen a lot of you know Johnny be bad as in WCW, and I always kind of got the feeling that Bad was this kind of guy that came out to a lukewarm reaction but got people involved. And one thing he hasn't really had a chance to do yet because invariably the matches haven't been good enough or long enough to do that has been to give people the opportunity to let them get invested in his match. Um, this was the first one that I think he's wrestled of the length and of the quality that enabled fans to do that. And I think it helped that he was working a guy like Austin that was you know, a very definitive heel that was kind of doing his best to work as a heel. Um, and so we'll, we'll we'll see how it all plays out. But I, I I was very impressed with both guys. It was a very you know it was a quite a long match. It was brave to send in two, no pun intended, two quite cold guys in terms of guys that fans haven't experienced a lot of. Um, and you know I guess we'll we'll, we'll see how it plays out. Uh, Chris, your your thoughts on uh, Mark Mara? Definitely different to what he was doing as Johnny B. Bad. Um, this character, the wild man, seems to be bland, shall I put it, sort of compared to what we used to with the flamboyancy of him being Johnny B. Bad. Um, I don't really get what the character's all about other than he has his missus that comes out in PVC. Yeah, that is a bit uh, That is a bit of an interesting way to do it. Craig, any more thoughts on this? Um, no, not 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 really too much uh, more to add. I think we've uh, we, we have summed it up. There, there does seem to be something in Miro, though. I was very critical of him. I'm sure it was last month or the month before, but it did he did come across as uh, at least being able to carry or play his part in, in a match. So maybe there is hope for him after all. We get a really nice promo from Jake Roberts, and here's the second semi-final. It's Vader with Jim Cornette versus Jake the Snake Roberts. Vader goes straight for the arm. Vader hits a standing splash for a two. Vader fires Roberts off of the ropes. Roberts hits a knee lift and shakes for a DDT, but Vader drives him into the corner. Vader then hits a series of strikes. Roberts cows in the corner. We hear a low-level Vader chance. Roberts shakes for a DDT. Vader shows the referee on the way down. The ref gets up and calls for a disqualification. That all looks a bit shit. The, the live shot, which they kind of tried to hide everything because they weren't sure how the angle would go down. But even on the replay, it didn't look very good. Uh, Vader goes nuts post-match, squashing Roberts in the corner, then hits a Vader bomb as Cornette traps the ref in another corner of the ring. Vader shakes for a second, but referee storm from out from the back and back him off. Vader even shoves Cornette. Roberts has to get help to the back. On reflection, in my notes, I've put the referee took a proper dive. Chris? As, uh, you know, we've just had Euro 96 seeing the referees go, or players going down like they've been shot. This referee's clearly been watching the football. You know, he, he did go down like a sniper had taken him out and, you know, <laughs> right in the Achilles. Vader is a beast. Why are we burdening him with these sort of matches where he could quite easily just sort of pound through everyone that they put in front of him? Obviously, I love the beat down afterwards, but that's the worst DQ I think I've seen ever. Craig? Uh, yeah, it's difficult to, to argue with the finish. It was terrible. It was a bit of a strange use. I mean, I can understand that uh, they, they wouldn't have obviously wanted Vader to lose clean here and but by Jake winning, it sort of makes it look like he does 
there is still some some life left in Jake Roberts as a as an in ring performer, and afterwards the sort of beatdown gets you all sympathetic ahead of his his match, where the odds are firmly stacked against him in the final. But yeah, there wasn't really really too much to this couple of minutes, largely a squash and then a terrible finish. It's difficult to really wax lyrical about this match. No, you're right. Um, you know, uh, it, it's another one where the actual booking around Vader's character has actually been quite good, but the actual booking of Vader himself has been pretty horrendous. And I think this was another one of those in that it made a lot of sense to have Roberts, you know, win the match in one way, shape, or form. Had he been facing someone else, he probably would have won it a bit more cleanly. Um, but to have Roberts win in a kind of disputed fa- fashion to give the heel uh, an excuse to beat up Vader, uh, beat, up, beat up Roberts, sorry, um, and then Roberts goes into the final as this valiant babyface trying to fight off all of these injuries. Um, but that didn't happen. Uh, well, that did happen, but you come to Vader and it's like this, you know, what is this? You know, it talks about them, them wanting Vader to go away and lose weight. It's like, Vader's strength is his size. Like, that's, that's the gimmick. Like, if Vader gets much thinner, I mean, right, he's got, you know, he's quite a big bloke. He could lose some weight and still be a, you know, a behemoth. But, you know, Vader's, Craig Vader's strength is in his size, isn't it? And, and, and in, in being booked as a, a, a compelling main eventer. I don't get it here. No, no, you're absolutely right. I mean, he should be, he should be steamrolling over over opponents. I remember seeing when he sort of first debuted in WCW when he had the smoking helmet thing going on, and it was just absolutely terrifying. So yeah, you you want him to look like a monster because he well, he's a monster heel, and you can't have silly finishes like this. You basically just need him to destroy everyone in his path before he gets the WWF title. If that's the the long game. Yeah, the match itself was nothing much to note. Um, the ref did take a proper dive for that finish, which was particularly disappointing. Uh, the live angle really didn't do anything for it. Uh, Chris, thoughts on Vader's booking? Um, obviously, having seen a lot of Vader sort of early 90s stuff and some of his Japanese stuff when him and Hansen literally pounded 10 bells of shite out of each other, if you want to have him as a DQ'd, just have him not break the count and just keep attacking in a corner. You know, there is ways of using Vader to his strengths, which is being a hard hard bastard that batters people and does moonsaults, and you can have him get DQ'd, you just have him ignore the ref. All a bit strange. We'll move on next to the Godwins, Henry O and Phineas I with Hill Billy Jim versus the Smoking Guns, Billy and Bart with Sonny for the WWF Tag Team titles. We get promo from the Tag Champions, well, basically just Sonny who's the only interesting part of the act anyway. She's not happy about Cloudy. Then get a promo from Billy Gunn goading Phineas about Sonny. Bart then attacks Phineas from behind. As Owen says, why not capitalise on an idiot? We start the match, Billy hammers on Phineas in the corner. Bart snatched a boot off of Phineas. Henry has to hold Phineas back. We get a side-by-side interview with Cloudy. Cloudy blows a kiss to JR. Henry gets it down to the mat with an armbar on Bart. Billy hits a lovely rocker-dropper type move as the guns are all over Henry. Owen says the guns have been more aggressive since Sonny joined them. Henry hits a small package on Billy and almost gets it. Billy hits a turnbuckle and both men go down. Bart fakes a tag noise while the ref deals with Phineas. Bart goes for a leg drop on top. Henry rolls out of the way 
we get a double hot tag. The next 30 seconds is a bit of a mess of tag team moves. In the end, the illegal man Bart hits a double axe handle onto Phineas and Billy pins him. Chris, thoughts on this? It was nice to see a tag match where they don't go into the crowd and it turns into a massive walking brawl. It was very generic. Anymore? It, 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 it was okay, you know, it was one of those of, from seeing lots of ECW stuff obviously recently, and to come back and to see this sort of type of tag match is quite strange from what I've been seeing most of the time. You know, it, it was non-offensive. It was. It just was a little bit generic. Craig, I thought it was absolutely terrible. I think these sort of two two teams highlight the sort of serious issues that the WWF are facing when you've got the sort of kind of cool invasion angle going on in WCW, and you've got in the WWF two farmers fighting two cowboys it sort of indicates just maybe a lack of grasp of, of reality, I think the fairest thing you could say about this was it's forgettable and I don't think you need at all to be fair to this match, just horrible horrible and I think these two teams between them at this stage had like four or five title title reigns I mean the fact that one, two, three kid and Bob Holly are former champions indicates there's not that much emphasis in the WWF Tag Team Championship, but I mean, I think we can do better than these two sides. Yeah, about a year ago, I think I would have said with decent justification that the WWF and WCW Tag Team Divisions were about the same levels in terms of stock. WWF wasn't far similar from where it was now. They had the Blue Brothers, they had... Uh, it would have been Luger and Bulldog, I'm guessing just about. They would have had the Smoking Guns, the Goblins, the Body Donners. Uh, no, sorry, the Body Donners started later in the year, didn't they? Um, they had a couple of other teams. But don't have basically to be, we're going to have perpetually three tag teams. We'll split one of them up and they'll debut a new one. In the year that's followed for WCW, they've now got the Steiners, the Road Warriors. Uh, more recently, the... Um, uh, uh, Gibson and uh, it's it, and Morton. It's the Rock and Roll Express, isn't it, Craig? What was that? Sorry, Gibson and Morton of the Rock and Roll Express, aren't they? Yes, that's right. Yeah, yeah. I was confused with the Midnight Express. Uh, we've got Sting and Luger. Uh, we've got Harlem Heat, uh, Legion Road Warriors. If I've mentioned them, uh, there's a number of really Public Enemy as well. The Nasty Boys. Don't forget those two. A number of really compelling tag team acts. It's just night and day now. And, you know, the, the WF Tag Team Division is a undercard division as it is. But this was just awful. It's just, you know, as I, I said it sort of tongue-in-cheek. Sunny's the only interesting thing about all of this. And it's like, she's getting dragged down in amongst all of this. I cannot believe that they haven't moved her on to a, a more compelling character. I can't believe they haven't moved her on to, to Hunter Hearst Helmsley or someone of that ilk. Someone that it's like, actually, this is a singles act that we're going to push, not that pushing Hunter Hearst Helmsley right now. Someone like that that could actually benefit from them being by their side. Craig, it's just dragging you down. Yeah, it is. There's no sort of other way to put it. It's just, oh, it's just terrible. Chris, anything more? Should we move on? We should move on. I'd okay. like to move on. Yes, third is from me. Right. <laughs> Jim Cornette gets a Dick Murdoch reference in during his promo. Mr. Perfect walks into the locker room during an interview. Henrik suggests there might be some got solution. I think I meant collusion in my notes. That probably is more likely. Uh, Bulldog cuts a wooden promo saying he's going to draw in the triple header club. 
Out comes Jerry Lawler. He sizes up the gown on the crown. Lawler cuts a generic promo on the Milwaukee Brewers. He then starts ragging on the audience. This is pretty awful, which I guess is the point. He picks up a woman in the front row and says, take a look at you. It's girls like you that turn men into people like gold dust. King says, once you frame a picture, the only thing left to do is hang it. And next up, it's Jerry Lawler versus the Albert Warrior. Laura attacks Warrior during his opening celebrations. He chokes him with his jacket. Fans start a loud Burger King chant. Laura chokes him again with tape and shouts, This is how you hang a picture. Laura hits a pile driver. Warrior completely no-sells it and gets straight back up. The crowd react with suitable bemusement. Clothesline, 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 shoulder tackle, and that will do that. Warrior wins. Craig, last month you said that this match had the potential to be absolutely awful, and I think it would be fair to say delivered on that promise. Yep, I could see into the future, and I was right. Uh, I mean, if if you're in the WWF right now, and you're sort of managing the coffers at the company, are you thinking the money spent on Ultimate Warrior by this stage of 1996 is worth it? Because so far he's had a, a, a squash of Triple H. Now, this nonsense here it's like what why what was the point in bringing the warrior back to stick him in nothing mid-card matches Chris yeah um, obviously not seeing anything after uh, Wrestlemania with him so obviously I've seen him destroy Hunter in no time at all but I don't get what the purpose of, of warrior is with WWF in 1996, they don't seem to mesh together. It's it's a throwback to the 80s where it's not needed. Yeah, um, Craig was right. Last month, it, it, it was a match that looked dire going in. Um, I, I suppose the only thing you can say is that it wasn't very long, and it wasn't. But Chris, I mean, Lawless post-match, pre-match promo, sorry... I mean, that's the kind of thing that belongs in 1979, doesn't it? I mean, we're better than that now, aren't we? You'd think so, but clearly Lawler is still stuck in the mentality of the territories, where, you know, when he was in Memphis, he was the king and everyone loved him. Whenever he went anywhere else, he was a heat magnet by going around and, you know, sprouting generic sports team reference look at the hideous person, ha, 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 make fun of the crowd and the old people. Oh, look, they hate me now. You know, yeah. we don't need that now. That died, that should have died in the 80s. Let's move on. Grim Monsoon is backstage in Jake Roberts' locker room. Roberts is being strapped up. Monsoon says he will let the match start, but he won't rule out stopping it. Next up, it's Mankind versus The Undertaker with Paul Bearer. Out comes Paul Bearer. Undertaker is nowhere to be found. The lights come back on and Undertaker is on the top rope. Undertaker comes off it with a flying clothes on and then unloads with some strikes. Mankind counters, but Undertaker gets him in the opposite corner and goes again. Undertaker attempts to remove the mask off of Mankind. Mankind runs over Undertaker with a double cl- with a clothesline while he's sat up on the mat. The crowd chant, rest in peace. Mankind sets Undertaker onto the outside, then drops the elbow from the apron. Undertaker rallies back in the ring but the action spills back out and Mankind drives Undertaker into the ring steps Mankind grabs some chairs from under the ring he runs at Taker, chair in hand but Taker gets a big boot up 
Mankind runs at Taker again. I'm going to take a back to him, uh, and Mankind lands, backdrops him, sorry, and Mankind lands on a chair on the concrete. Back in the ring, Undertaker drills Mankind across the back with a chair. He hits a big boot and goes for a tombstone, but Mankind slips out and hits a neckbreaker. Mankind locks in a rest hole. The crowd rally behind Undertaker. He rallies out with a series of quick strikes and a strong right hand. This is all intensity from Undertaker that we've rarely seen. Undertaker gets uh, set up against the ring step. Mankind runs from second base right the way to the home and smashes his knee into Undertaker's head. That looked really good. He then body slams him on the floor. Mankind goes for an elbow off the open again, but Undertaker grabs a nearby chair and blocks it. Undertaker then smashes Mankind over the head with a chair. That looked really good. Undertaker fires Mankind off of the ropes. Mankind hits the pile driver. He goes for a cover, but Undertaker barely kicks out. Mankind starts going nuts in the corner, pulling his hair out. He's worryingly good at that. Mankind grabs the urn, holds it in the air. He winds up for a big shot, but Bearer grabs it back. Taylor rallies with that, takes, sorry, rallies with that, but Mankind goes for the mandible claw. Bearer is still in the apron, channeling the urn. Bearer goes to strike Mankind with it, but ends up hitting Undertaker by accident. Mankind reapplies the hold, and Undertaker passes out. After the match, Mankind backs Bearer up the aisle over the chair. Undertaker crawls in pursuit. Chris? I remember when we said that Foley was or Cactus Jack was leaving the w, uh, ECW to go to WWF. What are they going to do with him? If this is what he's been like and what they're going to do with him, this is amazing. They've enabled him to still keep his, his violent edge. The, the elbow drops to the outside, the running knees into the chair, the stairs, the chair shots. You know, it still keeps to all of his strengths, it, yet with a character that they can, by the looks of it, they could do a lot with. And then they put him against Undertaker, which obviously we've seen Undertaker basically be thrown against everyone who's awful. King Kong Bundy, you're a big fella, you can go against him. Giant Gonzalez, you're a big fella, you can go against him. Fake Taker, well done, that worked. This seems like a feud between, for Undertaker, that has got legs. Because there is an element to mankind of violence and aggression and that slightly unhinged thing of will he stop? Can he be stopped? That is more working with the Undertaker than Undertaker's oh look it's a monster let's put him down. Craig? Uh, not really much uh, much to add to what, what's just been said but I mean the, the, the one big takeout from this match is Mankind makes the Undertaker look very good here through his selling and as has just been pointed out The Undertaker has no reason after the last couple of years to be made to look amazing but Mankind does that and I'm kind of excited about this one going forward Yeah I, I wonder how much the makeup of the match was decided once they said that Mankind was going to win it um, because a lot of Undertaker matches that we've seen have inherently been bad matches with bad opponents. But they've also been matches where, because Undertaker's probably going to win, they generally give his opponent a lot of offence. So, as a result, Undertaker does a lot of selling. He's not great at it, if I'm honest. I mean, again, to an extent, he's been, he's been working with some bad opponents. 
But as a result, the matches have been quite long and often quite plodding because he's he's been he's been relying on guys like Karma and other people like that. Or oh, most of the person just in my mind, people like Karma to to carry most of the matches. Coming to this kind of match, they decide Mankind's going to win. So as a result, Undertaker comes out and rather than doing a big long entrance, is already out there. The match starts out quite hot. Undertaker's gets into it, and the match ebbs and flows a bit. Let's let's be clear on this. But Undertaker probably got a much higher percentage of uh, offense in than he would have done normally. As a result, the match was really good. Uh, but Craig, I suspect as well, it helps that Mankind catches Jack McFoley is probably his best opponent we've seen him against. Would that be fair? Consistently, I, I know he's faced Bret Hart, but that match wasn't very good. Um, Bret Hart aside, is Mankind his best opponent he's faced? Uh, I would say so. Uh, it, it's not the, the sort of usual fit that they, they've put, put uh, the Undertaker with, but it, it does seem to have a lot of components that other other programmes that uh, the Undertaker was stuck in didn't have. So, uh, yeah, so... Yeah, it's it's all very positive. It just depends where they go next, as always. Chris, as I um, I love what they've done with Cactus, and I think putting him against Taker will a make him a, a, definitely a character to be kept around and in people's zeitgeist. Of the, he actually is something. Um, I just hope that they keep this sort of energy and level up and keep it going for a few months and then have a big payoff. Yeah. Um, so, like, if, if, if it's six matches, six months of matches with Undertaker and Mankind, if it saves us and get Undertaker versus most other people, I'd probably take it. Uh, we get an interview with Mr. Perfect and Doc Hendricks. Sean confronts Perfect and says he's worked way too hard for way too long for him to blow this. Goldust, and next up is Goldust with Marlena versus Ahmed Johnson for the Intercontinental title. Johnson storms out and unloads on Goldust from the get-go. Nice intensity. Johnson fires to Goldust properly hard off the far ropes and leathers him with a clothesline. So hard that it flips Goldust over, but Jim Ross says that he flipped him through 360 degrees, which isn't true. Johnson takes a run-up and does a great suicide dive over the top rope. That looks out of control. Johnson flings the st- uh, ring steps at Goldust, who gets out of the way. Johnson goes for a charge in the corner but Goldust moves and Johnson flips over to the floor the momentum switches Goldust locks in a chin lock Johnson rallies Goldust hits a sunset flip but Ahmed stands it up in it Goldust locks in a sleeper hold Ahmed fades to his knees Johnson passes out they did the, the, the whole kind of three things with the arm and Johnson's arm went down the third time as well uh, Goldust doesn't know whether to pin Johnson or give him mouth to mouth in the end he goes to the latter but the ref really should have counted the pin Johnson comes to and starts unloading in the corner which pops the crowd he then hits a pearl with a plunge pins Goldust and wins the match the crowd popped in for that and we have a new intercontinental champion Craig uh, I thought uh, I thought this was a lot better than I expected going in but my expectations were uh, were pretty low this is a uh, it's pretty good. Uh, Ahmed was fired up, looked really solid, and Goldust brought uh, his A game, and I don't think he has since he's really joined the company. I, mind you, I guess a lot of his time has been spent on his gimmick and trying to freak people out, but no, he he, uh, he performed really well in the ring, sort of reminiscent of his uh, his WCW time. No, I I, uh, I like this, and uh, liking it was probably the last thing I really expected. 
No, it, it is very easy to forget that Dustin Rhodes was a was a very very good wrestler in WCW, and that the the extremeness of the character has kind of taken precedence over actually the ring work. Um, and yeah, not to overstate this match, uh, I, I think the praise of the match is probably in part down to um, the fact that Johnson won it clean. Um, but certainly as well, Gold Dust, you know, and Johnson's a bit up and down as well, but Gold Dust helps into a, a quite interesting short match. Chris? It's nice to see that the Gold Dust character seems to be sort of doing something more than, you know, look, I'm, am I gay? You know, they're showing that he can actually wrestle in the match. I don't get why he was giving him the kiss of life and they didn't just count the pin. Makes no sense. And Johnson does look like he could throw people around for fun. And the one thing I would say is he does look like he could be a bit sloppy. Just a bit. Just a bit. Yeah. I could see someone getting hurt because <laughs> that that Pearl River plunge that he does as his finisher. He with the amount of grease and oil that he sort of loses up with, I think the flipping around on that he could drop someone on their head. Let's hope he doesn't. They run a preview for In Your House next month, which is called International Incident. They say it's out of this world. Well, it's in Vancouver anyway. And during the free-for-all, Mr. Pillman stated he was going to uh, come down to ringside and uh, give us a piece of his mind. Now, everyone who's ever seen this extraordinary athlete knows he's a, a little bit different, somewhat of a time bomb. As J- Gerald, let's take it. Go ahead. All right, Vince, thanks very much. Uh, Brian Pill. How's my extended family doing, Jimmy? Fine. I forgot to tell you. I don't even give a damn about my own family. And I think even less of this sewer of human waste that sits before me. It's easy to see why Jeffrey Dahmer tried to consume this whole state from head to toe. It's not really funny. I'm sure the fans are excited about the day that you will be able to compete in the ring. You think, how do you think you're going to measure up to this level of competition? Listen, you stupid son of a bitch. I'll get right, up we apologize. What I'd like to know is, how do you feel being one of the members of the Wretched Refuse? Sitting paralyzed with fear while Brian F. Billman does... Says whatever he wants. <laughs> We're gonna find out real soon if one of your so-called WWF superstars has the guts to stop me. <laughs> Just shut up. All right. Yeah, take a good look. I'm the brightest star that's ever stepped foot on the face of God's great earth. And a time bomb if there ever was Will one. Will you crown a king of the ring? The I would suggest that. Of a new revolution ascends to his throne. 
I'm going to rape, pillage, and plunder this entire federation. <laughs> Next coming out is Brian Pillman comes to ringside Jim Ross conducts an interview Pillman calls him a stupid son of a bitch which gets an apology from Vince straight away Pillman says he does and says whatever he wants and then says uh, sorry and then about five seconds after calling himself and I quote Brian Effin Pillman whatever he wants uh, he says he's going to rape pillage and plunder up this entire federation Pillman hobbles to the back, outwalks Steve Austin. We get a nice stare down between the two. Uh, Craig, uh, we've seen a lot of Pillman on WCW. We've seen a lot of Pillman on ECW. Um, what, what, what do you think of, of the latest stage of this um, and what, what this, the, how this angle came across? Uh, Hinton, uh, sorry, going back to what we sort of said at the start, the, the sort of chat of the company going in a different direction, and I think sort of Pillman's maybe the the best or one of the best examples of that. I mean, the the sort of way he acts, carries himself, right down to how he sort of speaks and, and ad- addresses other people is completely different to the to the sort of soft comic stuff that, that we're used to. It sort of makes you sit up and, and really notice and uh, really, really want to sort of see what the WWF are going to invest in, in him as a character. I mean... There's always the caveat that they they're probably going to tone it down. Like, not that it's a like for like, but that Goldust was toned down. But if they continue to maintain this sort of, sorry, maintain this sort of off the wall portrayal uh, of of the character, I think it's pretty pretty interesting and pretty exciting to see where they go with it. Chris, as Craig was just saying, it's one of those. Of how much will they let him get away with? will define on how well Pillman does. Because if Pillman's allowed to be do as he pleases, then we could be in for some very, very exciting times because he's a bit of a loose cannon. He is, you know, a very unpredictable. Anything could happen. But at the same point, we've seen when, you know, the WWF want to keep people sort of to a PG level it can sort of destroy a character you know they've they toned down gold dust already they could they could tone down mankind if you were too violent they'd be very much sort of oh don't do that so depending on how far and how much of a leash he's got will depend on how well this goes yeah um, so far, so good. I mean, the, the bit on Raw the few days beforehand with the kind of phony press conference was a bit weird, um, in the sense that that was Pillman in a kind of like a very subdued babyface role. But I'm really glad they just pivoted without really much explanation back to this Pillman heel role. Um, I think particularly while he's still limping around and while he's not fully fit, this is a very good use of him. Um, and, you know, to an extent, they could borrow a little thing from the, the ECW book that we, we saw um, only a few weeks ago, really, with the whole Pillman thing saying to Mike Whitwright, "Rot, you're going to hit a cripple." If Pillman can take bumps while he's or some some sort of bumps while he's you know in that kind of predicament, that works quite well. Um, but we will see. We move on to the King of the Ring final it's Stone Cold Steve Austin versus Jake the Snake Roberts Austin attacks the already suffering Roberts or suffering Roberts before the bell Roberts basically spends the opening seconds of the match just selling 
Roberts gets to his feet and fights hard, but everything he does is taking it out of him. Austin rips off Rob- Austin rips off Roberts strapping on his ribs. Gorilla Monsoon walks out and climbs into the ring. Monsoon orders the ref to hold Austin back. Roberts gets to his feet. He says he wants to continue. Quite unfairly, he uses the break as an excuse to start attacking Austin. Roberts shakes for the DDT, but Austin drives him into the corner and goes for a series of shoulder blocks. Austin picks him up, hits the stunner, wins the match clean as a sheet. We'll come to the post-match in a second. Chris? This was what it should have been. It was a nice short match, obviously selling the fact that Jake was battered by Vader, so it still keeps Vader's sort of up for earlier on that, you know, he does do damage to people. Um, Monsoon coming out the way that he did, I think sort of him being in the ring with it sort of ruined it a little, ruined the flow a bit on the match. Um, but, you know, I, I think Austin winning is the right decision and, you know, it shows that going forward there could be something that they've got plans for him. Great. If this had even been remotely competitive, this match, uh, Austin would have came away just looking absolutely hopeless. But in the end, uh, he just... just quickly uh, dismantled him and just looked completely ruthless in doing so and and that's that's pretty interesting a, a change from that sort of quiet man under the million dollar man that just quietly went about his business to this sort of hard hitting ruthless uh, icy character so yeah no uh, all is up in the world of Stone Cold yeah, um, you know, I, I completely agree. I don't think this this match being anywhere competitive would have benefited anybody. Um, I perhaps would have liked to have seen Stone Cold maybe kick out of the DDT. Um, that might have been quite a nice near fall spot they could have done just after the restart. Um, but yeah, you know, when Jake's in a position where you don't want him going too long in singles competition on pay per view anymore, uh, Austin worked long match earlier. Not that he couldn't have gone any length in, the, in this kind of finale, but it, it perhaps would have helped that he didn't. Um, yeah, better books. Um, Craig, thoughts on Austin as King of the Ring before we get this post-match promo? I mean, I I still think I would have given it to Vader, but I, I'm guessing this isn't a, a, a bad second choice. Uh, no, uh, and I think if the choice is between those two, then I think you could push uh, Vader into the main event despite our sort of criticisms of his match from earlier on the show with uh, with very little effort. But if Stone Cold had went from being, uh, pun unintended, Stone Cold to being in a title match in the space of a couple of months, it, it wouldn't have been believable. So he, he's won this, so now we, there's a there's credibility about him, and it's just sort of onwards and upwards for him. But he, he couldn't be slotted straight into a SummerSlam or Survivor Series main event. But... Vader really can. He just needs to rack up a couple of smash jobs on on TV. So no, I think I think this was the right choice. Chris, again, um, pretty much can't disagree with what Craig said. There. Um, obviously, you could have done Vader, and Vader would have been a nice, easy sort of selection of the monster that bashes through people. Um, but I don't think you need to give him the King of the Ring moniker to make him relevant or give him a reason to go and start matches. Whereas you can push Austin off the back of the fact that he is the king of the ring and that he has won this tournament, that he now has a purpose on the sort of upper echelon of game title matches of being in more more meaningful stories than strap matches with Sario Vega. 
Ladies and gentlemen, the fourth prestigious King of the Ring, Stone Cold Steve Austin, an incredible victory. The first thing I want to be done is to get that piece of crap out of my oh, ring. Come on. Don't just get him out of the ring, get him out of the WWF. Because I proved, son, without a shadow of a doubt, you ain't got what it takes anymore. You sit there and you thump your Bible and you say your prayers and it didn't get you anywhere. Talk about your Psalms, talk about John 3.16. Austin 3.16 says I just whipped your ass. He is stone cold. Come on, that's not necessary. All he's got to do is go buy him a cheap bottle of Thunderbird. All right, stop And it. try to dig back some of that courage he had in his prime. As the king of the ring, I'm serving notice to every one of the WWF superstars. I don't give a damn what they are. They're all on the list. And that's Stone Cold's list. And I'm fixing to start running through all of them. All right, Stone Cold Steve Austin. And and his remarks, yes, 1996 WWF King of the Ring. match is considered, son, I don't give a damn if it's Davey Boy Smith or Shawn Michaels. Steve Austin's time has come. And when I get the shot, you're looking at the next WWF champion. And that's the bottom line, because Stone Cold said so. Austin goes up on stage for the coronation. He says they need to get that piece of crap out of my ring. You thump your Bible and you say your prayers and it didn't get you anywhere. Talk about your Psalms and talk about your John 3.16. Austin 3.16 says, I just whipped your ass. As King of the Ring, I'm serving notice to every one of the WWF superstars. They're all on Stone Cold's list. Piss off. I don't give a damn if it's Dave Boy Smith or Shawn Michaels. Steve Austin's time has come. And when I get the shot, you're looking at the next WWF champion. And that's the bottom line because Stone Cold says so. Chris. I feel that this, this promo at the end is very much a statement of an intent. Um, from who? From him or from the company or both? Definitely from Austin. Um, obviously, if the company are sensible, though, because obviously we don't know whether this was a scripted promo or if this is what he's just come out with on his own. Um, but obviously, if this is what he's come out on his own, he's definitely put a fork down in the road and gone, this is what I want to do and this is what I want to say. Um, so, if it is, well done. If it's the company... That's some very good writing from them. So, you know, it definitely shows that they're tempted to let people have a bit of an edge to them, which is obviously going back to what we said about Pillman. If they are going to let people off the leash and say things that could be seen as quite controversial, because, you know, spouting Bible references and, you know, mocking someone who's who's been clearly troubled with alcoholism, you know, is a level that some wouldn't have seen from the WF a few years ago. You know, if they're clearly going to give people a bit of rope to walk with, it can mean good things. Chris, we've seen, you know, I think to a lot of people that would have seen Austin in WCW and seen him crop up here, um, there might be a bit of surprise that he had this in him, but I think as, as two of us that have gone 
through that ECW stretch, you only need to take a couple of stops over there to realise that he had this kind of promo in him. Yeah, yeah, we we sort of always can go back to the Eric taking back promo, where you know he has this way of being sincere yet aggressive, and you know the Hulk Hogan, why are you holding me down? One when he first turned up in ECW. You know, he he's a very very good talker, and from obviously what Craig was saying earlier that he was sort of put with obviously million dollar man when he's come in, and has been seen as the silent member and sort of million dollar man doing all of his talking and being the whole of his character. Hopefully, you know we can get some of what we've seen in ECW out of Austin and sort of let him have the thing that we've seen that we know that he's got in him. Craig, uh, yeah, I mean, uh, I, I think I think the main sort of uh, take off from everything just now is just to sort of I guess the journey, if you want the WWF. I made sure I was critical earlier on of of the Godwins and the the smoking guns match, but I mean, if you fast forward a year, could you have could you have seen uh, someone? The King of the Ring winner, albeit Mabel, I appreciate that, cutting a promo like Stone Cold did or, or someone like Brian Pillman coming out making the comments he made. I think, I think there's the, clearly a demonstration from the WWF that it's trying to change its product in reacting to the fact that viewers aren't as into it as they, they previously were. Uh, so that, that's something, and I mean, there's plenty of good takeaways from, from this show in general, really. Yeah, if, the, if there's one thing that ECW taught us is that a pissed off Steve Austin is quite a compelling one. Um, and I, I think when we were reviewing that ECW run, we said, well, you can't quite bring this version of Steve Austin to the WWF because it won't make sense. But if you can channel that version of Stone Cold, of, of Steve Austin back then into this Stone Cold character, it might just mesh. Um, you know, and, and this was really good. And I, I like that, you know, I'll be interested to see how quickly they get to that match to him and the champion. You know, last couple of years, the King of the Ring winners faced the, the WF champion at SummerSlam. I don't think that's the plan, although as far as I was aware, the plan was to do Shawn Michaels and David Boy Smith. We didn't mention it explicitly in the news, but it was one one kind of takeoff of um, David Boy Smith handing in his notice was that they kind of pulled back on him a bit. Um... Austin and Sean could be a lot of fun at SummerSlam if they go that direction. Um, that could be quite interesting, but we'll, we'll see about that. Um, but yeah, all in all, um, I would have gone with Vader, but I, I agree with the sentiment that Austin is a guy that perhaps needs it more, um, and Vader's a guy you can heat up if you just book him competently, and there's a discussion to say as whether they're doing that or not. Uh, competently, they probably are, but I don't think they're booking him much better than that. Um, but yeah, two big thumbs up from me. We move on to the main event. It's the British Bulldog, Dave Boy Smith, with Diana Smith and Jim Cornette versus Shawn Michaels with Joseph Lothario for the WWF Championship with special guest referee, Mr. Perfect, Kurt Henning. Bulldogs start shouting at a group of fans. Grillamon soon comes out and speaks to Howard Finkel. Finkel says Perfect will be officiating, but from outside the ring. Earl Hedner will be the referee inside of it. Bulldog gets the Union Jack and holds it, a, uh, holds it aloft. 
I mean, you know, cheap heat, cheap heat. It's 3am here in the UK, so I suppose in that sense that's appreciated. Fans chant USA. Owen says, hear that? They're saying UK, UK, which I thought was quite funny. Uh, Chris, what, what were your thoughts on, on Owen's commentary? I think Owen is amazing on commentary. I think it's, if, you know, he ever gets a long-term injury and touch what he never does because he's awesome. It would be a way to keep him on TV would to be put him behind the commentary desk because it's nice to have, you know, people calling moves and giving a bit of flavour to matches instead of Vince and his what are manoeuvres. Craig? Yeah, I certainly agree. Sort of bring something different different to the party. I think the the big thing is, Chris just said, the, the calling of moves rather than just the sort of mindless drivel that you usually get from the WWF announcers. Yeah, I mean, less about Owen calling moves necessarily. They, they've got Vince, and to a greater degree, they've got Jim Ross there for that. I think just more Owen's very quick-witted. Um, and for a, for a heel kind of co-commentator, you need someone that can be presented with the crowd chat USA and go, listen to that, they're chanting UK, UK, UK. It doesn't have to be very good. It just needs to be coherent and, and along the party line of what you're going for. Um, I don't think he was brilliant. I perhaps wouldn't praise him quite as highly as you do, but in comparison to the level of announcing across both major companies, um, pretty good, I would say. Um, Bulldog starts the match with a front flip. Well, why not? Uh, we get an exchange of takedowns and escapes. Sure locked in a side headlock. Michaels bounces off of Bulldog a couple of times. Then to the leapfrog, then skins the cat. Michaels pulls himself up and uses his legs to pull Bulldog, Bulldog headfirst over the top. Michaels then hits the head scissors to Bulldog on the floor. That was great if a little out of control. Bulldog regains some control with a side headlock in the ring. He takes to the mat and then just shouts, No! in a proper northern accent. Leapfrog standoff into a leapfrog spot into a standoff. A couple of arm drags from Michaels and Sean goes back to the arm. Bulldog still in the hole gets the ropes and uses it for a pin. The ref misses it so counts the pin for two but doesn't break the hold. Bulldog remains in it. Sean rallies out with chin lock and then hits a knee lift. Bulldog picks up Michaels into a press slam position, staggers backwards and just lets Michaels drop to the outside. The hard camera held the position and that looked great. Bulldog presses him back through the middle rope for a two. Goldust confetti is still all over the mat and in turn the wrestlers. Sean gets whipped hard into the turnbuckle. He flips over, drops back off and Bulldog falls in with a right. He gets up. Perfect gets on the apron, imploring the referee to ring the bell. Sean falls back and Bulldog has to release the hold as he's about to be pinned. Bulldog drops the leg on the back of Sean's head for a two. Bulldog shouts, come on! Sean fires off the ropes for a crossbody for a two. Michaels catches Bulldog in a crucifix for a two, then goes for a running power slam. Dave flips it over. Sean escapes, shakes for a super kick. Bulldog holds onto the ropes and then leathers Sean with his clothesline. That was a great sequence, that. Bulldog hits a pile drive, then goes for a top. He goes for a diving headbutt, but slips off and misses. Sean goes to the top. Bulldog drop kicks him and dro- drops him to the, on the turnbuckle. He then hits a superplex. The, the inadvertently ends up letting go of Sean midway through. It looked extra brutal. Back to the top. We get belly to back. Sean counters it into a crossbody for a two. Bulldog kicks out. Bulldog gets fired off of the ropes. Goes for a crossover and we get a big collision mid-ring. Michael goes for a hurricane runner. Bulldog hits a lovely sit-out powerbomb. Michaels fires Bulldog into the corner. Bulldog does his corner flip spot. Unlike in December, fortunately he doesn't land on his head. That looked really good. 
Michael staggers to his feet and whips up the crowd. He goes for a body slam, but Hebner goes down. Michael goes to the top, hits the top rope elbow drop. Hebner gets up, but he's groggy. Sean tunes up the band, hits the super kick. Just didn't really connect anywhere close. Hebner staggers to make the count. Perfect slides in the ring to make the count also, but Owen pulls him off for two. Hebner counts to three anyway, and that will win the match. Owen gets in the ring after the match. Sean puts Owen in a figure four, then manages a cradle on Bulldog. Eventually, the numbers cap up, catch up with Sean, and Bulldog and Owen hit a double suplex. Here's Ahmed Johnson, which the crowd come alive for. He press slams Owen, then slams Bulldog. Vader comes out and levels Johnson. It's three on two. Vader squashes Ahmed in the corner. Vader sets for something from the top rope, facing the wrong way for a moonsault. Then becomes clear as Warrior charges out and pushes Vader off the top. The crowd are going nuts for this. The faces mark the heels, and that sets up the main event for the In Your House show next month. Craig, your thoughts on all of that? Uh, yeah, the, I mean, this was a lot a lot stronger than uh, their match last month, uh, which, I mean, isn't a massively high bar, but no, I, I thought this, uh, I really enjoyed this. There was some really good action. Uh, these two do work well together. I think, uh, from memory, I'm sure we just wondered if something was a miss that it didn't click the last time so uh, perhaps it was just that because they seem to have both brought their A, a game uh, for this one does anyone else seem to think that th- there seemed to be some sort of botch at the finish because it just it just seemed really weird having both the refs in and Perfect being in there for no real reason it seems like maybe someone missed a cue or something was meant to happen and didn't or didn't it shouldn't have just seemed a yeah. little bit of a strange finish I'd agree with that. I I wonder whether the idea was was that you know Hebner was meant to be counting so much slower. So when Owen pulled uh, Perfect out of the ring, he stopped Perfect counting the three in normal time. Then Bulldog kicked out, would have or should have kicked out after before the three count, before a long three. Chris, any input on that? It confused me as well. Is it probably probably you can work out? It was one of those of, I think, as Craig was saying, that it was basically the mistiming. Um, I would have imagined that, obviously, because Owen was pulling out perfect, who was in there doing the count at normal speed, and that Hebner was meant to do, as you were saying, slow speed. So he'd pull out uh, perfect, perfect, and that was a two count, and they'd get from there. Um, the whole of the match was really really enjoyable Um, it's one of those these two sort of work so well off each other and bounce off each other so well that the the finish did sort of let it down a little bit that they needed to do a a dodgy finish is what I'll call it I don't know whether it was held by the fact it seemed a bit botched as well because obviously if it had been played out properly it may have worked and looked better um, obviously, as you're saying, with the news of David Boy potentially leaving in the next sort of couple of months, what the plan is with this and where they go from here, and whether that was the reason for the bit of a dodgy finish, who knows? Um, but obviously, it's looking like a six man for the next pay per view. Why is Warrior now involved in the main event? Um, 
Warrior in a six-man match. I mean, we, we talk about uses for Warrior in 1996. I'd say a six-man tag match is, I would say, perfect. But Craig, it, it, it's probably almost ideal. It's certainly the best thing. I mean, I don't think we can really sort of envisage him being in the title scene uh, and not winning it. And I just don't think that would fit in 1996. Mm-hmm. But uh, yeah, no, it. it does just seem like the the best use, and it just seems sort of strange that he hasn't been. I still just can't get over the the. They've clearly blown a lot of money uh, on the warrior. I mean, I assume he's probably got some sort of limited date deal, and it just seems like every date that they've used thus far has been a waste. And it's really taken until the closing moments of this event to really start to think. All right, maybe they actually do have a plan for him. Yeah. Um. Yeah, we'll discuss. I mean, Craig, what did you think of the match itself? You, you kind of got distracted on the finish, but what, what, everything before that, what do you think? I thought I thought it was uh, I thought it was really good. Uh, probably the best match on the on the show, uh, and for a change, though it did have a little bit of uh, competition. But no, I, I I really enjoyed it. The I thought the the stuff in the ring was crisp. Uh, I mean, I know we we talked about the cookie finish there, but I mean, it's not as if it was like. Overpowered with uh, interference or too much distraction from what was going on on the outside, it had the right mix of that, and the stuff in the ring was really good. So yeah, no, I, I, other than the curiousness of the finish, I can't really think of any black marks against this one at all. No, I I, I thought this was excellent. Um, you know, we yeah, you know, I think one it probably helped that both guys very much had their tails up after last month. Um, yeah, both quite rightly disappointed with what they put out. Some of it was some of it was absolutely beyond their control. But equally, in a fifteen sixteen minute match, I think you know both guys would have thought, well, shit, if we didn't know what was going on, we could have put on something a lot different. Two guys very motivated. Sean's still excellent, and and we speak earlier on the night about Davey was uh, about the Undertaker being a guy that you know we often hear is very good in the ring, but don't often get to see it. Um, I'd argue Bulldog's probably just as big a victim of that as he is, in that Bulldog's been, you know, I, I remember like if we go back to the very start of this project, back around the time he was facing Vader and in, in his kind of last run in his run in WCW and thinking there's something here and ever since he's been in the WWF he's kind of been mishandled I would say um, and as, as a as a big stacked guy certainly in a post-steroid trial world Bulldog is about as big as you're going to get um, certainly in the WWF anyway he is very very good for, for his size and you know we don't need any introduction to Sean who's I, I think is is very much mood dependent but I think all the stars aligned here take two guys that wanted to have a good match and one thing that I didn't mention on here but I mentioned on the WCW show which is I don't think it's necessarily a coincidence that in the month where Scott Hall and Kevin Nash rock up on WCW both companies have their best pay-per-view in at least 18 months. I don't think that's a coincidence. I think the everything with what's going on in WCW is kind of lifting the motivation levels for, for the guys in, in the WWF. Um, I just thought this was really good. Um, you know, and it's interesting to see where they go next. The, the, the six-man tag for next month seems like... A, it seems like a filler, I think. I mean, it, it's a pay-per-view that I think to an extent is going to come across as filler, as, as, as these in-your-house cards often do, particularly one that's not going to be in America. Um, 
it's a nice six-month tag. But, I mean, Chris, I'm guessing the big concern is if you've got those six names in the main event, what the hell have you got for the rest of the card? Well, obviously, coming out of Raw, we know that Undertaker and Goldust are going against each other, which... Obviously, in, a, in one way, it's a good thing that you're keeping mankind away from him, so it means that you know, you're not literally doing it every month. But you think Goldust would he not, you know, want to be going after his title? But then, obviously, using the champion in the six man, it looks like it's going to be a, a, pay, a pay per view full of just sort of matches thrown together for the sake of throwing them together. Craig, any thoughts on that? Uh, well, I mean, it's it certainly got star power as the, the main event. I don't think we can uh, we can deny that. And it's also worth bearing in mind that In Your House is probably only going to be about two hours or just shy of two hours. So you'd imagine the, the main event will maybe get 30, 35 minutes. So, I mean, there's not all that much time to sort of stretch out for maybe five matches underneath the card and I mean tag match the, the Undertaker matches was indicated you'd probably imagine they'll have something for Stone Cold so there's not really too much uh, that sort of filler uh, well time for filler available I don't think so if it was a three three hour event and you had those sort of six competitors in the main event I would be genuinely very worried but because you've lost an hour I, I don't think it's going to be as too big a deal says he optimistically. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I, your logic is sound, but I think we've seen enough to know that that may very well not be the case. But we'll, uh, yes. we'll, obviously, yeah. we'll obviously get to that next month. Uh, Craig, your overall thoughts on this show and his scoring out of 10? Uh, yeah, I, th- I thought this was very good. Uh, I, 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 other than the 93 one, I hadn't really thought King of the Ring had really clicked as an event, but I thought this one did. Uh, like I said at the start, there was some really, really good matches. Three properly very good matches. Only a couple of things that were forgettable or or really terrible, as the, the tag matches I've now said several times. I'd probably say maybe seven, seven and a half out of ten. Yeah, one thing I didn't mention but I think is quite pertinent is that uh, one thing we said, have spoken about before is the whole point that um, King of the Ring over the last few years has featured quarterfinals on the show, which has meant they're already trying to get four, seven matches on the card and they try and force in a few others and the show ends up being very disjointed. This is the first King of the Ring show that's just featured the semifinals and final on the show. Everything had a lot more room to breathe. Uh, Craig, uh, Chris, sorry? I would give it um, a good seven and a half out of ten because of you know you've got some absolutely classic matches that you do have to see here. Um, the Sean and Bulldog match is a really good one. Taker and Mankind is something that I think everyone should be seeing. Um, obviously Austin and the winning the King of the Ring you know, may not the the King of the Ring winning match may not be a classic, but you know I feel that it could be the start of something. So, it, you know, it's the sort of thing that you'll probably look back in a couple of years and go, there was the genesis of of something bigger. Yeah. Um, uh, Craig, you gave it seven and a half, didn't you? Uh, yeah, no, I did. And I think yeah. I think the point you made about the format's probably spot on, Bob, because was it last year's that uh, Savio Vega wrestled three matches? I don't think anyone... Well, but has... wrestled, wrestled four. 
was it? I mean, no one, no one needs to see him wrestle more than once in a night. And like it worked, it was fine in that three when Bret Hart wrestled three times, but uh, because he was able to have three very, very uniquely well, different because matches. Because he's Bret Hart. Because it, he's Bret Hart. And he's not. Uh, yes. Exactly, and I, I mean, I, th- I think, I, th- I think that played a big part because I mean. There's only so many people that can really compete that many times in the night, and I think it sort of it, it worked really well. And they were still able to tell that story of Jake getting broken down and all the odds stacked against him. So yeah, no, I thought the format worked fine, and that probably helped a great deal. Yeah, I, I, I will I will make it a hat trick of seven and a half out of ten. Um, I, I was probably higher on the show before we kind of review it, as is a lot often the times when you when you talk through a show, when you think about a show having watched it, you remember the good stuff but forget the bad stuff, and then when we go back through it, you go, that was worse than I remember. That was worse than I remember. And there's a little bit of that, but one, it's probably eighteen months to two years of just really really underwhelming WWF pay per views. Um, but it's really good matches on this show. Really good. Main events, yeah, probably sans the Sean and Diesel match from a couple of months ago is probably the best WWF match of the year. Um, Johnny B. Bad or Mark Merrow against Stone Cold Steve Austin in the opener was a real pleasant surprise. Not that you think that either guy couldn't do it, but more that you probably wouldn't bank on them doing it. Um, and the Undertaker-Mankind match is a lot of fun. And one thing we talk about next month, they're going to do Undertaker and Goldust. If Undertaker's winning, Goldust probably dominating that match, which probably automatically means it's not going to be very good. Um, but yeah, I'll, uh, Hattrick is 7.5 out of 10. If you've been waiting around a while and thinking, fuck on, Bob, give us, give us a good WWF pay-per-view to watch. Uh, not great, but this would, would come recommended. Ahmed, another incredible victory, but if we're going to talk about the greatest victory in your career, it happened last night at the King of the Ring. I know you've got to be proud of the reception you've got here tonight all over the world, but you've got to be super proud. You are the first ever African-American intercontinental champion. I still say it's the Buster Douglas of the WWF. He won't last long. First of all, Mike, Doc, I just want to say I am very proud to be the first African-American champion of the world. That means I make history. But you're going to be history. I want everybody to understand I am not defending this belt just for African-Americans. I am defending the belt for everybody in here, black, white, red, or green. Look at all those green people. This belt, show some respect. This belt, for a long time, has been around the wrong waist. Everybody had this belt, had to defend it for themselves. But I am going to defend this belt for the people from now on. All right, Ahmed, talking about defending the title. Obviously, the former champion, Goldust, will want a return match. Well, I'll tell you what. I'll tell you what. If Sweet Lips wants some more, he know where to find me. I ain't too far to find, brother. We open up on June the 24th with the new Intercontinental Champion, Ahmed Johnson. He's facing Hunter Hearst Halsey in a non-title match. The match isn't going anywhere fast, so we get a promo from Goldust. He says he tried to save Ahmed Johnson's life last month. Now he vows to end it, then says he's going to bury The Undertaker. 
Johnson wins with a pearl of a plunge. In a post-match interview, Doc Hendricks called Ahmed Johnson the first African-American intercontinental champion. In return, Johnson accidentally calls him Mike for calling him Doc. Ahmed says he's defending the belt for the people. We get Sonny out on commentary for a match. We see some applications to be the manager of the Body Donners. They say there's been over 500 letters and videos, videos which all look awful, it should be said. Body Donners defeat Brooklyn Brawler and Jerry Fox. The subject of most of the commentary is on Cloudy, the new Body Donners manager. As an aside, the Body Donners face turn literally seems to have been when Sonny turned on them, so it hasn't really worked. Uh, after the match, Sonny gets chased away from ringside by Cloudy. We get a warm-up six-man tag. The team of Vader, Owen Hart and the British Bulldog defeat Savio Vega, Aldo Montoya and Barry Horowitz. Brian Pillman, Brian Pillman comes out. This is great, this bit. He's already complained to Vince McMahon. I've been with this promotion a week. Where's my money? You've already reaped the, rin- reaped the windfall of my signing. Pillman is out ahead of the main event between Undertaker and Steve Austin. I'll eat my hat if this one doesn't end by interference by Gold Dust. Jerry Lawler tries to get some comment from Paul Bearer, specifically about the finish last night. Bearer doesn't offer comment. After a while, out comes Goldust. For what it's worth, in this exact moment on, over on TNT, Kevin Nash and Scott Hall are storming out on Nitro with baseball bats. Undertaker hits a chokeslam, then picks up Austin for a tombstone. Goldust blinds him with some glitter and Undertaker wins by DQ. The show ends with Lawler goading Bearer again. Billman, I'm going to say after last night, I think, uh, yes, the worst fears of most everyone was realized in terms of what you're likely to do or say, unless you have a moment. Well, what I need to find out right now is who the hell I need to talk to to get my goddamn money. I've been with this promotion for over a week. You've reaped the windfall of my signing. Beg your pardon? You heard what I said. I didn't stutter, McMahon. Pillman, with all due respect, you've yet to get into the ring, obviously. I don't need to get in the ring. All I need to do is get in your face and find out if you have the guts to do anything about it. Brian Pillman signed a three-year WWF contract on the 7th of June, bringing an end to the speculation over where his future lies. Pillman, who is still recovering from a Humvee accident that occurred in April, appeared on Monday Night Raw before the pay-per-view in a babyface mode, before quickly reverting to his heel character at King of the Ring. It's said that Pillman played the WWF off against WCW with negotiations. Even with the acquisitions of Scott Hall and Kevin Nash, it's thought that Eric Bischoff does not want to be seen as a company that is losing talent, not only after the newsworthy departure of Mark Merrow, but also someone in Pillman who has gained so much momentum on both ECW and WCW television so far this year. After WCW Uncensored, when WCW advertised Pillman right up until pay-per-view time with the genuine belief he'd be there, it's said that there was a bitterness to people within WCW, including Kevin Sullivan. WCW cooled on him a bit, particularly thinking that a guy of Pillman's size wouldn't be of interest to Vince McMahon. On the 1st of June, Pillman and Eric Bischoff agreed a three-year contract worth just over $1 million. However, there were two provisions in the deal that Pillman didn't like. Firstly was the denial of first-class air travel, which wasn't particularly important. The second was the inclusion of a 90-day break clause in the deal, effectively meaning the contract would only be good for 90-day periods. That was a deal that contributed to Mark Merrow's exit. WCW were so convinced that they had the deal done, they referenced him on Nitro at the beginning of June. The bizarre outcome of WCW's work shoot with Pillman was that they actually terminated his contract right down to sending him legal termination papers. 
What's significant about that is that under their existing deal, they had a 90-day first refusal on Pullman and would have had the opportunity to match the WWF's offer or at least delay his arrival. Significant from the WWF side of things was Pullman being offered a new kind of contract on what is said to be a downside guarantee. Traditionally, the company will offer talent a simple percentage of gates based on the position on the card, but with WCW offering the kind of flat rate guarantees on a much lighter schedule than the WWF, something probably had to give. If he wasn't having a newsworthy enough year as it is, Pillman got in serious hot water with New Jack at an ECW event at the beginning of the month after using the N-word in reference to the band NWA. You can hear more about that story in Volume 3 of this month's show. It's said that there's the allowance in place for Pillman to see out his programmes in ECW, including working a match with Shane Douglas. As for his health, one of the reasons for Eric Bischoff's apprehension on signing Pillman to a long-term deal was doubts over his health. Doctors have said that, with sufficient recuperation, he should recover 100%, but his appearances on WWF television this month included him hobbling around on crutches. It's said that Jim Cornette and Jim Ross both had strong hands in contributing towards his signing. And we finish the pay-per-view and come on to some discussion points for the for the end of the month. Um, there's there's really th- three things, although the third one is kind of sort of wrapped into the other two, and all three of these stories directly relate to WWF and WCW. Uh, obviously, if you want to hear all the stuff surrounding all the WCW action, particularly related to Scott Hall and Kevin Nash, you can hear it all in volume two. Uh, we will start with Brian Pillman, because this is probably the one that's most attached. Uh, on the back of that audio piece that you've just heard... Um, Craig, I mean, a, a fascinating story to, to listen to. Fascinating to find out. I think WCW's side of things, and we didn't discuss that particularly on, on, on Volume Two, so uh, I, I, I will I will ask a comment on that as well. But just your thoughts on uh, for less so about Pillman on TV since he joined, and more about what we've seen this month before he got there. It's uh, yeah, yeah. It's uh, it's it's just been hugely hugely interesting. It's just a fascinating way that he's he's really conducted himself and and gone about getting this getting this move. I mean, as we discussed, Pillman's a, a fantastic character and, and he's very convincing and I mean he obviously played very strongly to those uh to those attributes when uh, securing what is essentially his release with a non compete clause by trying to sway it as an angle. It's uh, he's played very played his hand very, very well in, in getting the move to the WWF. And a lot of talk about how Pillman's heated himself up. But the one thing I find fascinating about this is that all the stuff that's gone on, all of the quite compelling slash very compelling television if you include probably his angle in ECW in February Craig, he's not drawn a dime yet, and he's just earned himself a new contract with more money. Fascinating. Yes, no, no, exactly. And I mean, there's the sort of question marks over his sort of injury status and everything like that. And it's it, it's quite remarkable that you, you've got what is essentially really a very strong bidding war between all of the the, the top companies over over someone that that you. Uh, you wonder what what his sort of in ring future is. I mean, it'd be the equivalent of like several top English Premiership sides bidding for a striker that had serious injury uh, concerns, and it just it wouldn't and, and make hadn't sense. actually scored any goals all season as well. Yeah, ex- exactly. Exactly. That's the sort of uh, p- perfect example. Maybe he can sort of say some nice quotes at a press conference, but 
question marks remain over whether or not he can still do it in the pitch and that's the sort of position that uh, Pillman's really talked himself into because other than talk we don't know what else he can do yeah, I mean, he's essentially, uh, I don't know the exact uh, figure. We may well have mentioned it in that report Stuart just read out. Um, but he's essentially got himself a guaranteed deal for three years. We don't know a lot about this new downside guarantees thing. Um, but essentially it means that he's going to get paid to an extent, come what may, um, which is beneficial to him. But he's, he's, he's earned himself a guaranteed deal for three years off the back of creating a lot of ways, but not actually drawing a lot. Like, you know, he... A lot of stuff happened in WCW, the bit at the start of the year where, you know, Bobby Heenan told him to um, get the fuck off of me or something like something that. Something like that, yeah, yeah, yeah. He, he said the word fuck anyway. Yes. Um, and then all of that and all the stuff that followed on WCW, leaves WCW, goes to ECW, cuts that great promo, has all the interaction with Shane Douglas, crashes his car away for a few weeks, returns to ECW, negotiates with both the WWF and WCW, and leaves, ends up with... Probably more money than he would have got as otherwise. WCW ended up legit firing him as part of a storyline, which gave him more negotiating power and less pressure from the other side. He ended up getting a deal that will apparently enable him to keep working in ECW. Well, not keep working, but will enable him to, as and when he's fit, go back there and work Shane Douglas, which is a match that ECW wants to do. His independent hotline stuff, apparently he can still do. Other things he's got on the fire, he can still do. Chris, Pillman's pulled an absolute blinder here. He has all, seen the all fact, while being crocked. Yeah, seeing the fact that you know, obviously, I've seen a lot of early WCW stuff, so I know him as Flying Brian, and when he was absolutely amazing in a top top draw in the cruiserweight division. It's very much a, what have you done for me lately? Yet somehow he just just by being a, an amazing promo has made to promo himself. A, a, the perfect deal because he's free to go and do his outside uh, sort of things of like as you say his hotline he's free to go and do the WECW date which I can see he'll probably get a decent whack out of that what else is he sort of you know on the side businesses that he can make money out of and all of which with a foot injury that who knows if he will ever get back into the ring? Yeah, who knows? And doctors are saying that they think he will, but you know, you, you can never guarantee. And who's that? Who knows what? You know, he can. His foot can be repaired, but there is a difference between a fully healed foot and a foot that will enable Brian Pillman to wrestle the kind of style he wrestled in 1995 and before. Now, okay, as, as I said kind of earlier this year, there's the, there's the trade-off between this new kind of wacky Pillman character and this very fan-pleasing, baby-faced, high-flying style that, as if and when he gets fit, he will need to reconcile. Um, but Pillman's done fantastically here. I mean, all the stuff with WCW, it's a fascinating story. It's why I kind of made a, a, a big deal out of making a point of it. Um, and the whole thing with, with the new contract stuff, which will be interesting to see. But as we transition into the next discussion point, one of the fascinating things about WCW kind of getting hot and all of a sudden having more impetus and more money to spend, or a bit more money to spend, is that wrestlers are benefiting here. Guys are able to, you know, if if it doesn't work out in one company, they can go to the other. If they've got negotiating coming up, British Bulldog may well just be using the threat of WCW to get himself a better deal with the WWF. More power to him. All this stuff's working really well. 
The war which is raging on screen between the WWF and WCW this month is hardly much quieter off it, as the WWF's legal department have been all over the presentation of Scott Hall and now Kevin Nash on WCW television. That involves sending Hall a letter directly before filing a lawsuit for an injunction later in June that, while not fully successful, did at least force WCW to adjust some plans for how they were presenting their storyline. Neither Hall nor Nash have been named so far on WCW television. Announcers have simply referred to the pair as those two. You know who they are. In the WWF's letter to Scott Hall, which they published in full on their online service, they said, It's obvious that you were attempting by your appearance to suggest to the consuming public that you and others from the WWF were now going to be appearing on Turner Networks in WCW programming as part of some interpromotional matches. To further this attempt to mislead and confuse the public, you stayed completely within the character portrayal of Razor Ramon, a registered trademark of Titan Sports during your appearance on Nitro. Indeed, both you and WCW personnel never even mentioned the name you intend to wrestle under at WCW, choosing instead to tell the audience they knew who you were. You dressed like Razor Ramon and utilised the Hispanic accent given to you by Titan as part of your character portrayal. Titan, of course, has no objections whatsoever to you portraying a new or different character devised either by you or the WCW, but will vigorously exercise its rights in connection with your attempt to pawn off or suggest to the consuming public that your WCW appearances are in the character of Razor Ramon. End quote. On June 20th, Titan filed a lawsuit and a restraining order against WCW. The lawsuit had four counts. Firstly, talking about an attempt to deceive by convincing consumers that they were watching an interpersonal angle. The second, regarding the likeness of Razor Ramon. The third, an unfair competition ruling in Connecticut. And the fourth relates to the incident on the February 5th Nitro, where the commentary team sort of implied it was the WWF that had caused a power outage on the show. Titan also filed a 10-part restraining order, most of which were obvious things like don't mention or use likenesses related to the WWF or the characters that Hall or Nash portrayed there. One comically referenced the presentation of Kevin Nash's Diesel, right down to his goatee-style moustache and facial hair. It ended with point 10, asking for WCW to state three times during every Nitro broadcast that Scott Hall and Kevin Nash are both under contract to WCW and all their actions since May 27th, 1996 have been at the direction of WCW. Any statements made by us or suggestion made by us that Hall or Nash were affiliated with the WWF were false and misleading. The temporary restraining order ended up being delayed after the judge wasn't able to attend to the case properly. This saw it end up being delayed until July, crucially after the Bash at the Beach pay-per-view. The judge did, however, suggest that WCW turn down the persona of Hall and Nash between now and the pay-per-view. The WWS lawsuit stretched to 30 pages in length and included the quote that both Hall and Nash worked in WCW under different and, quote, relatively obscure personas. As for what this all means, there was plenty of talk regarding not only what happened with Ric Flair in the WWF around five years ago when he showed up with the NWA Championship belt. Also, as WCW attorney David Dunn pointing out that of 41 wrestlers who have moved from the WWF to WCW or vice versa in the last few years, 28 of them have switched using their existing names. Also, the similarities between Hall's Diamond Stud character in WCW and his Razor Ramon gimmick in the WWF. All this doesn't seem to derail much about how WCW have told the storyline thus far, but the segment at the Great American Bash did involve Eric Bischoff outright asking both Hall and Nash if they worked for the WWF, and he mentioned WWF by name when he said it. But Craig, we, we move on to the Scott Hall story, um, which in, in many ways is even more fascinating on the basis that not only is it stuff that's happened, it's stuff that's ongoing. What, what's your thoughts on all the legal ramifications? We'll come to the on-screen stuff in a bit, but everything that's been going off off-screen. It's, uh, 
it's remarkable hypocrisy from uh, Vincent and WWF, considering how sort of the road rough shot over every sort of territory uh, in the 80s and snatched some of the biggest stars like Hulk Hogan from the AWA and just used that to sort of sell themselves to to millions and become the biggest wrestling company in the world and as soon as someone else with a bit of money starts to do something the same legal letters start getting chucked about. You have to remember this is Vincent Mann who would just go to buy a territory with a sort of briefcase full of money. So it's just well, well, it, it's isn't remarkable. This more, isn't this more... Sorry to cut it off, Craig. Isn't this more a remarkable hypocrisy from a company that bought over Ric Flair in 91, 92 and had him covering the NWA title? Isn't that a more accurate comparison? Well, yeah. Uh, absolutely. But, I mean, uh, my, my point uh, mostly was that it's not like sort of four years ago that, that Vince done this first. It's decades ago that Vince McMahon first started just tearing other wrestling companies apart to steal their biggest names to, to, to give them advantage over competitors. So for him to sort of lob his toys out of the pram, which is what he is doing over uh, Hall and Nash, is just quite remarkable. Chris? See, the thing that I find most interesting in all of this is the parts about using the gimmicks and the characters that have been created. Obviously, you know, Razor Ramon is a very sort of iconic Ray, character. Razor Ramon was Nick from Scarface. Razor exactly. Ramon wasn't, wasn't an original gimmick either. No, but obviously, you know, that was... He was very sort of recognisable as that sort of a character... But Vince has done it when he brought over the Legion of Doom. He didn't change anything about the Road Warriors. He just gives them a different name. You know, he brought Flair over. He basically kept Flair as Flair was. So he has got no sort of right to say that he's people can't steal other people's characters. You know, um, obviously using the name is obviously says trademarks on the names and things like that. So obviously there would be where they could get them into hot water, but they've already said that they're going to be known as Scott Hall. So he's using his real name. So well, well they, they, crucially, they haven't said that yet. Apparently the idea is they are looking to see whether they can register a new name in time. Obviously, there's you know there's stuff relating to that, but it, we're, we're calling Scott Hall the differentiation between him and Razor Ramon, and the mm-hmm. fact we know he's not really called Razor, but we don't necessarily know what he will be called. That all being said, there is the thought that if they can't get a new name in time, they will just call him Scott Hall and Kevin Nash. Sorry to cut you off, Chris. That's fine. But also looking at the Kevin Nash side of the you know the, the gimmick part of this, where they've said that his goatee is part of a gimmick. I never knew that someone's... It wasn't just the goatee, but that was the one that really stood out. All, all the stuff, because basically, apparently, they submitted this. Oh, you would have heard it, in the, obviously, in the report, shoot just read out. But they submitted this, like, 30-page document and outlined there's an entire paragraph on stuff they were claiming rights to on the diesel gimmick, and it was pretty much everything. It right down to the glove, the gear, the you know, the name, the go the goatee was the one that stuck out because the goatee was the kind of thing I'm like, what? Like, are you sure he just didn't have that have that anyway? I, I don't know. Sorry, Chris, I keep cutting you off. 
but obviously it shows that Vince is a bit scared of what's going on and it starts with Hall and Nash then is it Sean is it Bulldog is it Owen is it Brett and then does he find that all of his top guys have gone and can they take over their characters so if they turn up on WCW on Monday Nitro Bret Hart comes out in his pink and black he is very very recognisable as that character it's like Hogan and his yellow and red you know these things are so sort of ingrained in the psyche of wrestling fans that you know they are you think until recently obviously until we went over to WCW you fought Hulk Hogan you fought WWF you think Bret Hart you think WWF you know, it's one of those of, is Vince that worried about him losing his toys? Craig, help me out with a Hulk Hogan-related history lesson here. What did Vince McMahon get when Hulk Hogan joined the WWF? And what Because Hulk Hogan was already Hulk Hogan when he joined. That's correct, right? Uh, yeah, uh, and he had performed previously as a bad guy in, in the early, late 70s, early 80s for the WWF as well, uh, but in AWA was sort of the, their biggest star. Uh, he wasn't their, their champion, but he was big, and he had, if, I'm thinking of getting the timeline right, he had appeared in Rocky uh, and before he came to the WWF as well, so he was quite sort of a big name in wrestling and was starting to make waves outside of wrestling as well, so they certainly... Wait. Where did the yellow, red and yellow come from? When did that cut in? That that would have been at WWF because even earlier in his period, he wrestled briefly in blue trunks. I think the I think he might even wrestle in blue trunks on the event uh, after WrestleMania one or the the tournament one. I can't remember what it's called, wrestling classic or something like that. I'm sure he wrestled in blue on that, but yes, I think the the yellow stuff's largely a, a Vince creation. Chris, um, just a, a, any more on a Hogan history lesson? Yeah, um, obviously, as Craig was saying, he wore white and blue pretty much in the old AWA days. When he first came into WWF, he still wore the white and blue, and obviously then the he was then given the Hulkamania thing, which is when he started wearing the yellow and red. And obviously, Hulkamania being sort of the trademark name that he was known as, and the and the movement was known as, obviously that is all a Vince creation. Thank you for the history lesson. The reason I, I kind of so contrivably set that up was to, to, to hopefully make a point which you've enabled me to make, which is... There isn't really a difference when you look at that kind of history that you've given me. There isn't really a difference between what's happening now and what happened two years ago with Hulk Hogan in, in WCW. Now, he had the rights to the name because he was using that before going to the WWF. But there's not really anything different here between this and what WF could have done two years ago with Hogan going to WCW in the red and yellow. If you think about it, they could have made the same claims. They could have said, look, you can use the name, but I, we're looking at what we've given Hulk Hogan over the last 10, 11 years, 
and the red and yellow is part of it, and they could have looked at so many other things too. Um, I, I wonder they didn't, but I almost wonder whether is there, is there anything in ring that they perhaps could have or would have uh, tried to claim off of Diesel or uh, or Razor anyway. But a fascinating story. It is ongoing. Go on, Chris. Anything? I think the difference is that Hogan's deals. He owns a bit of his likeness rights. Right. Um, and there's sort of trademarks that he owns because obviously the name Hulk is owned by Marvel because it's connected to the Incredible Hulk. So I think that there's weird sort of deals with all of that. So I don't think it's one of those where Titan Sports, the entity, owned full creative control and likeness rights and image rights and name rights on the character, whereas obviously Razor Ramon and Diesel have never been used in anything out of wrestling and or anywhere else. So they are full intellectual properties of Titan Sports, whereas obviously Hogan as a whole, he owned bits of it himself and also has the external parts to it as well. Well, thank you both of you for indulging my Hulk Hogan history lesson. Uh, that was appreciated. Um, let's let's kind of move on to the, the final discussion point of the month, which is basically Nitro. Um, but part of the reason that I came about with came about with this point and this discussion topic was last night I was kind of put together the show, watched the final episode of Raw for the month that, you know, now we did write up the TV report you just heard. And I was thinking about, I thought, I can't remember a single thing that's happened on Raw TV this month. And I look back through all of my notes before recording the, the, the pre-tape that you heard out in the show. And I just remember thinking, this is so mid-card. And, you know, it doesn't, you know, you lose two of your biggest names to an extent, to an extent you can't do a ton about that. You could, obviously, but, you know, that's, that there have been guys that have been booked poorly that will, will keep their contract if you're paying them well enough, et cetera, et cetera. But losing Razor and Diesel, Bret Hart being away, and just their general lack of star power, Craig, Raw has been awful this month. And at a time when Nitro is hitting home runs left, right and centre, well, not even that. At a time when Nitro's got a hot angle, because let's be clear here, Nitro's not a great two-hour show right now. It's more missed than it is hit by some distance. But with the Razor and the... The, with the Hall and Nash stuff and with a few other things that they've got going, Nitro is so much more must-watch right rather than Raw. It's untrue. Uh, yeah, it, it also makes you want to tune in next week, whereas Raw is Raw's like the very opposite of the criticism of Raw is the very opposite of the praise that we've directed at King of the Ring. It just it just comes across as old and tired. We talked about King of the Ring featuring edgy, edgy moments, but Raw just seems to be an advert for sort of WWF of old. Uh, whereas over on Nitro you've got this pretty cool uh, angle developing that makes you want to tune in it makes you count down the days until you tune in for the next instalment whereas you're just sort of watching 
squash mid-cardy matches on Raw. It's, Raw doesn't seem to have really moved on much from 1993, whereas Nitro's came from a further behind point and is now comfortably in the lead. And I mean, you you need to just look. You only need to look at the ratings for to see the, the impact that's having. Chris, well, obviously going with not seeing much of Raws because obviously I don't really have time to watch them all. Um, seeing that it's is very formulaic. Obviously, watching the four episodes this month, it each had three matches, each had at least one sort of interview types moment, and I'm just like, is this superstars from like the early nineties? Because it seems exactly the same as what superstars did back then. You know, back then you had the funeral parlor or brother loves love shack or the barbershop, you know, you had your interview segment, you'd have a three matches and that would be it. Uh, other than the fact that these matches have counted for something because they've been the King of the Ring talk qualifiers, it is rinse and repeat. You know, we're still getting half and half picture interviews while matches are going on like they used to do back in the day. It, it seems as the WWF as a whole are looking at TV as they did in 1991 when they were doing Superstars and Wrestling Challenge. They just don't have much star power. Um, I, I think it's probably more simple than you both make out in that they, you know, WCW have fallen into a pattern where they will put all of their star power on all of their shows with the odd exception. And to an extent it helps that they've got a lot more of it um, and WWF, I th- you know, I mean, it, it's weird. We get the first good show in 18 months. At the same time, we get the worst patch of Raw in the same amount of time. Like, Raw last year, TV-wise, was pretty good. They had star power. Okay, it wasn't going up against Nitro, and Nitro, to an extent, has changed the game a little bit in that they've, they've taught us that it's less about squash matches and that there's more unpredictability. And... To an extent, that's difficult to replicate. But I, I, I watched Raw this month, and I kind of just thought, you know, I, I've sat through shit WCW pay-per-views for three years, and I've never thought, I don't need to watch this. Like that was my thought watching Raw at times this month was, there's nothing here. Like we ended the month with Stone Cold Steve Austin against The Undertaker in the main event. And I'm like, I just don't care. And to an extent, that's an unfair criticism in the sense that WCW, probably much more than Raw, has been guilty of putting out big-name matches that have ended in crappy finishes. But at least, you know, at least where... You know, I I put it in my TV notes in the sense that I said, Undertaker against Stone Cold, I'll eat my hat if this doesn't end with Goldust interfering. At least when they do a big match main event on Nitro and something goes down... It's it's generally a screwjob finish that leads to an angle that leads to something that's at least quite interesting, at least horrendously predictable. The gold dust stuff was just so utterly obvious. It was so obvious that it was coming. It was kind of depressing. Like it's like ugh, like I've got to sit through all of this. Um, and yeah, it's it. I, I, Craig, is it as simple as star power? I think a lot of it's to do with star power. I mean, there's there's more to it than that. I mean, I, I still think that the WWF stuck slightly in the past, and it's been very very cautious. Uh, and that that approach is very clear, particularly on Raw. Although they seem to be 
shaking the shackles off slightly or kind of the ring there. But WCW have just went for it, and so it just means that WWF are now uh, playing catch up. And I mean, until they catch up, they're always just going to be going to be chasing and just seem that little bit like natural. Obviously, that that bit behind the the competition. And that will bring to a conclusion this month's show. We will see what happens next month. Uh, firstly, a big thank you to Chris Lacey. Chris, thank you very much. You're welcome, Bob. It's always a pleasure. And a bit different to watch WWF instead of ECW. Yeah. Um, not necessarily better. I mean, as I say, it's weird. Like All the stuff last year, 95 was a bad, bad year for pay-per-views, but the TV often was quite good. Quite good relative to 1995. And I think in the, in the six months that Nitro followed, it was there. But it's weird that as Raw's kind of slowly slowed down and losing Razor and Diesel was a massive part of that, we get a good pay-per-view, which is something, I guess. Uh, Chris, you do a WCW podcast looking at uh, WCW through the NWA years, and I think you're late 1991 now, I think. Uh, tell people about the show and where they can find it and where they find you on Twitter. Yeah, well, my personal Twitter is nice and easy. It's Lacey555666, where I just rant about stuff. Um, podcast I do, Super Rules. Uh, we started in 1983 in the NWA, and we have just done the last clash of the champions of 91, leading in to the first Lethal Lottery and Battle Bowl at Starcade 91, which is our next show to record. Um, that's nice and easy to find on iTunes. Just put in Super Rules. We're at Super Rules on Twitter and Super Rules on Facebook. And, you know, if you do listen and like it, a review would be lovely. Craig, thank you very much. Uh, it was a, it was a pleasure. It was uh, an enjoyable show. Excellent. Uh, Craig, uh, you have uh, a blog that you run covering stuff from around this area and previously and beyond. Uh, tell people where they can find that and where they can find you on Twitter. Yes, uh, you can find my uh, blog at ringthedambell.wordpress.com and uh, as any good blog should have, all the social links are on there to follow and check out our other musings. Excellent. That will do that. This, for what it's worth, a bit of admin. Uh, you, you will hear our WCW show uh, that we recorded a couple of days ago in Volume 2, uh, and I finally lost my rag with Skype as a... Well, the show ended up being two and a half hours long, of which we had about 25, 30 minutes of, of inserts, pre-tapes, promos, stuff like that, the intro. Um, so we taped just shy of two hours worth of content on Friday night, and it took us three and a half hours to do it, and I kind of lost my rag with Skype. So we are trying Google Hangouts. Hopefully, touch wood, uh, it's uh, it's all gone well, but I'm uh, happy for that. So that's a, just a, a, a note for anyone that cares about podcasts and stuff. Uh, three volumes this month, this one, volume one, volume two, WCW, busy-ass month over there. Another, oh, I, I speak about... King of the Ring be really good. Great American Bash is a show to go out of your way to see. Very good wrestling show with some great angles. We discuss all that in Volume 2, along with all the Hall and Nash stuff. Volume 3, ECW, I'm not on that show, barring about three or four minutes in. Um, but Rory, Dell, and Steve take you through all the ECW action this month. Interesting ECW show. We've got the, the debut of uh, Sandman's Kid. 
Uh, we've got the shoot fight. Boy, that's a sight to behold. I, I, I chip in on that at that point in the show. And all the other ECW action for the month. Uh, and that will do that. You can find me on Twitter at Boy Bambi. You can find all the info you need on wrestling20brs.com. We're on iTunes. If you're on there, leave us a rating and a review. Uh, and that's been that. I've been Bob Bamba. This has been Volume 1 of the June 1996 edition of the Wrestling 20 Years Ago podcast. Until next time, goodbye. <laughs>